audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. Consistency. The consistency of, of Christ and his faithfulness to his people. The consistency of his people to stand firm for him. Consistency, the vast majority of the time, is a very, very good thing. Consistency in rain? Yeah, we kind of learned that. Thankful for that rain this week. Very thankful for that. We learned also this year that the consistency in lack of rain is not a good thing. Okay? Um, KU football winning? I mean, my my goodness, my goodness. I mean, uh, because... I've been a KU football fan for a long time, and the only thing consistent about it is disappointment for a long, long time. So, and you got to understand, from the frame of mind of, of Travis and I as KU football fans, like three or four wins, that's consistency, people, like in a year, okay? That's like we were dreaming about that not that long ago, weren't we? So, all right. Um, how about showing up for work? Is that a good thing when it comes to consistency? What about showing up students for school? Is that a good thing when it comes to consistency? What about showing up for the Lord? And I'm not talking about church. Maybe your mind will go there. Yeah, I showed up at church. No, I'm talking about showing up for the Lord on a daily basis in the way in which we represent him. You see, when it comes to the spiritual aspect of life, consistency is very closely related to integrity. It is. In some situations, they could almost be synonymous. As we um, have wrapped up Acts chapter 15 and jumped into Acts chapter 16, there's some things going on. Um, The second missionary journey has begun. And as we wrapped up chapter 15, we saw that kind of the dynamic duo of, of, of of Paul and Barnabas have kind of parted company and gone different ways. You got Silas, or Silas, this is confusing. You got Barnabas, who took John Mark and went to the island of Cyprus, kind of his hometown. So that's where they went to visit the churches that had been planted earlier. And that's why you don't see Paul going that direction. Paul takes Silas and they go off kind of to the northwest because Paul and Barnabas was taking care of business down in the south. West, I guess you would say. So that's what we've got going on. Um, the first missionary journey that we went through for several weeks, um, that was Paul and Barnabas. They went around 1,200 miles, took about a year and a half. The second missionary journey of Paul and Silas, well, they're going to up the ante here just a little bit, about three years and about 2,700 miles. Okay? Now, the first part of that journey, as we will see a little bit of today, is visiting the churches in the Galatian region that they planted during that first missionary journey. And as we also saw in Acts 15, there's a little letter, very important letter, from the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem for these Gentile churches that needs to be read and encouragement needs to be given. Okay? That's going to play a little bit of a role in what we look at today. Because when you look at these first few verses of chapter 16, it makes me want to say, okay, I need an explanation here. Have you, you know, sometimes in life you just kind of need an explanation. You see, grandma doing 138 in a 45 mile an hour zone, okay, that would probably demand a little bit of an explanation. It might look a little something like this. Okay, grandma, Mima, Mimi, Moo Moo, okay, whatever you call her, all right? You're going to have to explain this one to me. This is not 
in character for you, Grandma. Now, I don't know about your grandma. That might be in character for your grandma, okay? There's just times you want an explanation. Okay, remember, as we jump into the first part, these first about five, four or five verses here of Acts 16, we see Luke, the author of Acts, the doctor, you see him concluding what might, when it comes to church and church practice, we will see him concluding what might be the most crucial part of this account that we call Acts of the Apostles. Basically telling the Gentiles, remember, that circumcision and the following of the law, it is not necessary. You don't have to do that. The gospel is enough. Jesus came, he died, he was buried, he busted out of the tomb, all right, and a bunch of people saw him. And that event in history changed everything and provides for us a way to God the Father. We are saved through Christ. There need, there need be nothing more. Christ is enough. And I'm telling you, Luke spent a significant amount of time and ink making sure that we understood this. So all of that in mind, my goodness, look at the first three verses of chapter 16. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. These should sound familiar to us. We've heard about these places before. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were there in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, you guys know I like to write in my Bible, okay? I'm a fan of doing that. And I got something written right beside verse 3 in my Bible, and it's a big question mark. (laughs) Because I see this, and my mind's like this. Okay, come again. What did Paul do here? Dr. Luke, what what, what did Paul do here? I kind of need you to explain this to me just a little bit. Haven't we just spent a significant amount of time on this? Circumcision doesn't mean anything. Not necessary, don't need to do it. What is going on here? Well, first of all, geographically, as I've already told you, this should sound familiar. We're going to have, um, here in just a moment, Tim will pull up a map because it's going to be a big part of what we do in these next few weeks. Not yet, but he'll have it here in just a second. And um, when we see that, we're going to see that, that Paul and Barnabas spent a significant amount of time in this region Okay, it's been about a year or so since they were there. And since that time, the church there in those towns, in those cities, man, is doing well. I mean, it is going very well. These young believers are growing, okay? And this was not an easy place to live out your faith for Christ. You remember what happened to Paul when he was there? They stoned him. Drug him out of the city because they thought he was dead. Okay? How easy do you think in a place like that it is to live out your faith in Jesus Christ? Here's the thing. When it's not easy to live out your faith in Christ and you do it anyway, you know what it does to you? It makes you pretty strong. It makes you pretty resilient. And these young believers were something. 
They were strong. Now there's one that kind of jumped out of the woodwork, off the pages though, and his name, as we've seen, was Timothy. Now we hear quite a bit about Timothy throughout the book of Acts. Matter of fact, there are two letters written to him at the, at the hand of Paul that's also part of our New Testament, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. When it comes to living out your faith in Christ practically, there's some value in those two letters, right? So you got this Timothy. We learned from some of that other writing that his mom was named Eunice, okay? We also learned the way Paul kind of spells, or way Luke, I should say, spells this out in his account It doesn't really show it in the English, but in the Greek, it makes it pretty clear that his dad was probably dead by this time. And his dad was a Greek. His dad was a Gentile. So he had a mom who was a Jew. He had a dad who was a Gentile. Now, obviously, the Jews in Asia Minor were a little bit more liberated, if you will, than those in Judea and around Jerusalem, because that just didn't take place there. And here, I mean, it might have taken place, but it was still kind of unusual when it did, okay? Okay. now this Timothy, my goodness, he has tremendous potential. And this is not just the opinion of the Apostle Paul. I mean, everybody there in that region thought well of this young man. Now when they saw Timothy, they saw something else. They saw a special type of hybrid, if you will, in the eyes of the locals. Meaning this, the, the Gentiles would see him as a Jew. But the Jews would not see him really as a legitimate Jew. So he's kind of stuck in the middle in all of this right here. And Timothy, now, he's going to be a part of this missionary team. It's not just Paul and Silas. It's Paul and Silas and Timothy. And as they will go out in the second missionary journey, preaching the message of Christ to Gentiles and Jews alike, something needs to happen here. But here's the question. Why would Paul ask Timothy to undergo circumcision? I mean, he's a young man, yes, but he's not a kid. Okay, guys? I'm going to be blunt here, all right? I'm 46 years old now. We've had this conversation, BJ, all right? Interesting conversations you have when you get older. My goodness. You know what happens to 46-year-olds or a guy? You know the word they start, they start talking about? The C word, colonoscopy. Tim Hawkins even wrote a song about it, colonoscopy, all right? (sighs) I'm not looking forward to this. I'm not in any way whatsoever. But if you give me a choice between a colonoscopy and being 20-some years old and getting circumcised, you give me a colonoscopy every day of the week and twice on Sunday, let me tell you, okay? All right? The question is, this is somewhat of a sacrifice here. And why is Paul saying, Timothy, you need to do this when he has spent so much time, so much testimony, and he's by this time quite possibly already written a letter to these churches that they're visiting that we call Galatians in our New Testament saying that circumcision is not necessary. Where is the consistency here? Do you know that Paul in, in his day had his critics? You don't believe me, just read First and Second Corinthians. Oh yeah, he had some critics, okay? Do you know Paul still today has some critics among Bible, among Bible scholars or whatever? And, and the accusation that is laid against him then and today sometimes is this. There were times when he was inconsistent. Here's the problem. It's the classic tree forest problem. You know what I'm talking about? Can't see the 
forest for the trees, or you see the forest, and so you can't see the trees. You understand what I'm talking about in this, okay? Listen to the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in talking about the use of his freedoms that he has in Christ. And he says words like these, I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. He follows that wording with this, to the Jews I became as a Jew so I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law I became as one under the law. Though me and myself not being under the law, I become as one who is under the law so I might win those who are under the law. Say that really fast about ten times, okay? And he keeps on saying this and then he basically says this, I've become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. That is how he wraps this up. Here's the thing. Listen very, very closely. Paul's inconsistency was a symptom of his undying consistency to do everything for the sake of the gospel. You understand what I'm saying? Paul did everything in his power to remove every personal roadblock that came between people and Jesus. And that's why when he was among the Gentiles, he was going to talk like a Gentile. When he was around the Jews, he was going to preach like a Jew. That's what he was going to do, remove the roadblocks. So nothing would come between people and them hearing the truth about Jesus. Now, Timothy, he's a Jew. Maybe just a partial one, but he is a Jew. And guess what? Timothy obviously bought into the mindset of his mentor. There is no inconsistency here whatsoever. It's this, I am willing to make sacrifices, even if it doesn't feel that good, so that people will hear me when I'm telling them about Jesus. Paul never laid the burden of circumcision or law-keeping on the shoulders of Gentiles. He didn't. And the vast majority of the time, he didn't have to do that with the Jews. 99.9999% of them were already circumcised anyway. They were Jews. Jesus was enough. Okay. Let's take a look at this. Verses 4 and 5. So I hope that makes sense to you. There is a reason why Paul had this done to Timothy. Who knows? Oh, maybe Luke even did it. I don't know. Luke was a doctor. We're going to hear more about him in just a second. Let's look at the rest of this, verses 4 and 5. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So right there in verses 4 and 5, we see Luke, Dr. Luke, with a nice little bow, wrap up this conversation on circumcision amongst the Gentiles. It's over. It's done with. And he finishes it with a just incredible way, telling the truth of what was actually taking place. But Luke was such an encourager. The churches were strengthened. They were encouraged. And they were growing. Right? So now what are Paul and Silas and Timothy going to do? Um, they're kind of on the, the fringes of how far the gospel has gone. They're on the frontier, if you will. What's going to happen next? Let me tell you something about the frontier. If you plan on going there for a while, you better plan before you do so. Because if you're truly going to go to the frontier, no matter what that frontier might be, you're probably not going to have the same accommodations that you have when you're not there. So you better plan. 
okay? I'm guessing that Paul and Silas, I would imagine that they burnt some midnight oil planning and strategizing when it came to their journey because they're about to head out here, right? We're going to pull that map up here in just a second, and we're going to look at it closely, and you're going to see they're on the edge. They're on this frontier, and they're ready to go. But as much as the strategizing and the planning that I'm sure that they did, because they were both very sharp fellas, I would also imagine a lot of time was spent in prayer, okay? And verses 6 through 10 are the results of those prayers. So let's take a look at it. Okay, uh, Tim, go ahead and pull that, go ahead and pull that map up. Um, as we look through these next, next um, five verses or so, typically Tim will, will pull up those verses and have them on the screen. We're going to stick with this map. So, so if you rely on that normally and you want the word in front of you, get your hard copy out or, or get it on your phone. We'll be looking at, again, Acts 16, basically verses 6 through 10. And we're just going to talk our way through this just a little bit, all right? All right, verse 6. Now they passed through the Phrygian and the Galatian region. All right, open this up. As I said, we've already looked at a map before. The last map we looked at a few weeks ago was, was the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas at the time. As I told you, remember, that was 1,200 miles, took a year and a half. Uh, the arrows are a lot bigger this time, okay? This journey, they're, they're in, they've already started it. I'm going to tell you again, about three years, about 2,700 miles, okay? So where they're at now, they're going through, they've gone through um, this area right here labeled Galatia. They've gone up to Phrygia, kind of that area, and where they have landed is Antioch. Okay, you see that? All right, one thing about Antioch, remember a few weeks ago, that was like as far as they went on their last missionary journey. So we are talking about the frontier here. So now, they've gone through these churches here in the Galatian region. They've delivered the letter. They've done all the encouraged the churches. And it's like, okay, it's time to go on now. And, and what they're thinking is, okay, we're going to go into to the rest of Asia. And if you're going to go to Asia, you know where you're going? Ephesus. That's where you're going. It's the place. Okay? Big city. lot going on there. And I'm guessing in the back of their minds, through their planning and strategizing, they're thinking, okay, we're going to leave Antioch here, we're going to shoot through this big, big valley, and we're going to land down here in Ephesus, you know, which your ballpark talking, you know, over 100 miles here. That's where we're headed. (laughs) Best laid plans sometimes, huh? Let's see what happens. They pass through the Phrygian and Galatian regions, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So instead of going right on down there to Ephesus, they go, woo, they head north through the Mycenaean region, Mycenae. Let's continue on. After they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go to Bithynia. All right, so here you go. They land up here, you know, through Mycenae. They're coming close to Troas. Now, you don't see it. This map's kind of blown up a little bit, but that Bith, actually, it's just Bit, all right? That's standing for Bithynia. That's that region, and what you're talking about here is a very, very sophisticated Greco-Roman region of the world. I mean, these people, there's some Jews there, but very, very intelligent people here, sophisticated cities. So Paul and, Paul and Silas, well, let's go north. I mean, it's always good to go north, right? Because don't we all love winter? 
I mean, snow, it's all, I mean, she want to go north and have some snow? That'd be great. All right, anyway, so they're like, all right, we're going to go north. Uh, let's see what happens. Verse 7, after they came to Mycenae, they were going to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. So they get up here, they're going to go north, Spirit of Jesus. Now, I don't know the difference here. It says the Holy Spirit prevented them from going into Asia. It says the Spirit of Jesus didn't want them to go into Bithynia. It says, nope, can't go there. Does that mean Jesus showed up in a vision or something and told them? I don't know. Does it really matter? The Holy Spirit, Jesus, they're kind, of, they're kind of in this thing together. All right? So anyway, so they go to Troas. So they're in Troas. Let me ask you this. For those of you who take instructions sometimes, because we all have to take instructions sometimes, Especially if you're a planner, do you like being told no or yes more? <laughs> we got any no's out there? Any at all? Just curious. <laughs> Your mom's shaking her head like fish. She's saying no way. You don't like being told no. All right. So what we got here, we've got Paul and Silas. Who've been, they've been told no twice. They're sitting here in Troas, which, by the way, Troas, um, it is a Greek city before Rome's kind of took over, um, built about 400 years before by Alexander the Great. So we're talking about a pretty significant place, a powerful trade route and all this stuff. So I imagine they're doing what, what Paul always does when he lands somewhere. They're preaching the gospel. But while they're in Troas, something happens. And for those of you who don't like no's, you're going to like what happens next. They get a Yes. Verse 9, again, they're in Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So you've got Paul, you've got Silas, you've got Timothy, and who else we got? Did you see a pronoun change in there? You English people, because I know all of you loved English when you were in school. We? Dr. Luke joins the team. Whoa, here we go. I don't know if he was a doctor there in Troas or he just kind of showed up. Who knows? Maybe he's the one who did the circumcision on Timothy. And he's like, these people are crazy. I'm going to hang out with them for a while. All right? So we've got Luke joining the team here. And they are told... By the Spirit, through a vision, to go into Macedonia. And if you're going to go into Macedonia, folks, there's one place to go. Philippi. Philippi. You know, I'm not going to talk much about Philippi because we're going to talk a lot about Philippi in these next few weeks. Right? It also happens to, to wear a name in our New Testament, Philippians. If you know anything about Philippians, you know this is going to be good in Philippi. Because when Paul writes to the Philippian church, he's stumbling all over himself telling these people how proud he is of them. And how much, you know the word used again and again and again in that letter? Joy. How much joy he receives from just even thinking about what they're, the way they're living out their faith in the Lord. So, we're going to talk about Philippi quite a bit. But what I want you to understand is... 
They are bouncing around all over the place here to the west. They're going to land in Corinth here before too long. That is going to be, you see all this going, the zigzagging kind of over here? That basically is the meat of the second missionary journey. And as they will travel back down to Jerusalem and then up to Antioch, they will come down and they will visit Ephesus for a little while and then they're off and running again. And guess what? When the third missionary journey rolls around, they're going to spend a ton of time in Ephesus. So here's the thing. You know when you pray and make plans and the Holy Spirit gets involved? You know what the Holy Spirit does with those plans? I know you see this and you think, blows them up. <laughs> well, occasionally, all right. But, but more importantly, the Holy Spirit improves the plan. And you've got them bouncing all around this big, huge cultural center of Ephesus. And you don't think they're in Ephesus hearing about what's going on? In these places, hearing about this Jesus guy. Guys, we're talking about Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke. We're talking about giants for the Lord. And yet, and yet, the Holy Spirit still needs to get involved. You know, plans are good, necessary even. But no planning, I don't care how good it is, I don't care how detailed it is, no planning is sufficient enough to forego the absolute necessity of prayer in the midst of that planning. Do we understand that? I'll tell you what, the elders of this congregation can tell you by painful experience that when we try to go a direction or paint a direction for this congregation without prayer going into it, It just happens. I don't care how well the I don't care how good the intentions are. I don't care. You don't pray about it. It's not going to work. The Holy Spirit works most effectively amongst praying people. Listen closely to me, brothers and sisters. There is no personal spiritual change. So you understand what I'm talking about by that. I'm talking about personal spiritual change. The change of an individual, their heart changing for the Lord. There is no personal spiritual change or big spiritual revival in history that the Holy Spirit has not been right in the middle of. When you came to Jesus, the Holy Spirit was right in the middle of it. When revival has come to any nation or civilization in the last 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit was right in the middle of it. And here's my question, brothers and sisters. When we do our planning, how often do we ask the Spirit to be involved? Okay, I know this might be a little hard to believe, but back in the day, I used to like to play a little three-on-three basketball. I'm telling you, three-on-three basketball, intense three-on-three basketball will kill you. It's because there's no kind of taking a break while you're running back and forth from defense to offense. You are going hard the whole time. You remember those days, Bryson? I can still remember when Bryson, Elijah, I think Andy Peterman, I can't remember who all was a part of that. They're junior hires playing in these three-on-three 
tournaments with like college age and then old men like they're in their 40s or something like old you know okay and it was crazy how well they they actually did like who are these kids who are these kids well fortunately they never had to play my team you know it's a good thing huh Bryson because we had a pretty salty team you know back in the day that's what I'm saying all right So I know a little bit about three-on-three basketball. I haven't done it for a long, long time. But just imagine this with me, Bryson. We're going to start it back up again. It's you and me, all right? We'll grab Jason behind you too, okay? We'll grab Jason. So it's going to be us three. We're going to go to a high-level, competitive one. You know, high school basketball coaches, you know a little something about that. Put those together for fundraisers sometimes, you know? And uh, it's going to be us three. And then our fourth, our fourth is going to be Michael Jordan in his prime. Hey, we can do anything we want. I'm making this up, all right? I'm not talking about Michael Jordan now, which that would be good enough. I'm talking about Michael Jordan, 1989, 1990, 1991. LeBron James, eat your heart out, okay? We're talking Michael Jordan, okay? And we show up to the tournament, and there's these studs running all over the place. And can you imagine just for a moment, Jason speaking up, because Jason likes to talk about sports, and Jason looking over Michael and say. We got this one. Why don't you sit this one out? Can you imagine the absurdity of that moment? And yet, how often? Tell me, how often do we ask the Holy Spirit to sit it out? We got got it this time, okay? Oh, we've planned well. Oh, yeah, we've put a lot of work into this. We've studied. We've got it. Why don't you just, why don't you just sit this one out, the Spirit? Do you know we can't even, according to Scripture, pray effectively without the help of the Holy Spirit? Do, Do we realize that? You understand that's what Scripture says, don't you? We cannot even pray effectively without the participation of the Holy Spirit. It comes from Romans 8. This is what it says. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So he who understands what the will of the Spirit is and understands what the Spirit is about, puts that in conjunction to with God's will, and the result of this is powerful prayer. Brothers and sisters, if you don't hear anything else today, you hear this. Do not neglect the Holy Spirit living within you. Ever. There is no gift that compares. Remember Acts 2? You remember that very first gospel sermon ever preached? You remember that? Scripture tells us the people were cut to the heart 
And they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? And Peter said, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're a baptized believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. You are housing the Spirit of God within you. Do you even understand what that means? You know what Jesus told those men he spent more time with than anybody else in his time here on earth? I mean, intense. Maybe the only ones more were it was his own personal family that he grew up with. He gathered this group together and shortly before the time that he knew that he would, he would be leaving them. I mean, he spent around three years with them, and he looks them in the eye and he has the audacity to tell them, it's good for you that I leave. Because if I don't go, the helper can't come. And that is the helper we have living within us.